Good morning, everyone. Whew, you all made it. My goodness. Tell you what, even the preacher didn't want to come this morning. I looked out the window and just saw that gray rain and snow falling, and it was just miserable. Uh, and I just kind of wanted to stay curled up in bed uh, because you can hear my voice is maybe just a fraction off. Um, I was an absolute Grinch on Monday. Uh, I was supposed to be involved with the meet and treat, but I decided to get the flu instead. Uh, and so I was a complete Grinch in darkness at home while the rest of the family were out and about. Uh, and while I'm feeling fit and strong, I just have not been able to shake whatever's going on over here. If I start coughing midway through, uh, forgive me, it's not COVID, I did test. So we're all good, we're all good. Or at least hopefully. I might have to visit my doctor during the week, but we'll see about that. So today we are continuing our journey through the book of Acts. Uh, for those who might be visiting us in person this morning, uh, perhaps visiting us online, over the last couple of weeks we've been journeying through the book of Acts in a series that we're calling The Gospel on the Ground. Uh, and it's a journey through looking at that early church as that early church is released by Christ and sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel, to take the message, the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. So beginning in Jerusalem and then spreading out from there. And of course, the gospel that they take is their testimony to Jesus Christ. It is the testimony to the death and resurrection and really what they're saying is that Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ as God incarnate, took our sin upon himself, he died on our behalf, but not only did he stay dead, having died for our sins, but he came back to life. And the fact that he came back to life means that indeed he can offer eternal life. And so we receive this eternal life. And so as we've been going through the book of Acts, every now and then we've paused and we've looked at kind of people and we've compared people because that's what Luke does. Uh, if you read through both the gospel of Luke and Acts, every now and then Luke will take two people and he'll compare them to one another. And one is a good example and of course one is a bad example and the whole point being which one are you like, which one should you be like. And so we've done that for interest's sake, but we've stopped at certain key points in the book of Acts because Acts has a couple of pivotal moments. It's these moments where had that not happened, the rest of the story could not happen. There are these key moments in the book of Acts. The very first one is in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. We know that the Holy Spirit is needed. Jesus told his disciples that he had to return to the Father. And the reason he had to return to the Father was so that the Holy Spirit could come. And so in Acts 1, Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem. Wait until that counselor, that Holy Spirit comes. And then, of course, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon those Christians in the upper room. And they are they're enthused and empowered and enabled and equipped by the Holy Spirit to go out and to proclaim and to preach. Regardless of the persecution, regardless of even in the face of death. And so that's that first pivotal moment. The second pivotal moment in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 9. And Pastor Jennifer did that a couple of weeks ago when we find the conversion of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And it's this fascinating story of this Pharisee, this person that is zealous for God, 
And he sees the way, that's what the early church were called, or the early believers, he sees them as a threat to the purity of Israel's faith. And because he is so passionate about the purity of Israel's faith, he persecutes that early church. So much so that he imprisons, uh, and he's there with the stoning of Stephen. He, he's there to, to make sure that this way is stamped out. And I love the fact that God doesn't kind of look at Paul and go, okay, Paul, you're a problem. I'm just going to wipe you out. I love God's sense of humor because God goes, you know what? I think my mission needs my biggest critic. And God, God radically transforms Paul as Jesus meets with him. And suddenly Paul, this persecutor, is now a, a proclaimer of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine that early church? And we, we know that from the next few chapters. People were like, hold on, that's the dude who was trying to kill us all. Let, let's, let's avoid him. But yet the Holy Spirit does this incredible work. And so this, the apostle Paul is reformed and, and proclaims the gospel and the good news. So that's the second main pivot. The third pivot is the one we actually began with when we started in the book of Acts. Remember, we started at Acts chapter 10, and it was that movement of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, moving from Israel into the Gentiles. And you'll remember Peter at Cornelius' house, and Peter kind of having this wrestling in this internal wrestle going, I'm Jewish. I, I'm part of Israel. We're, we're, we're to have nothing to do with the Gentiles. We're to have nothing to do with these unbelievers. Yet the Holy Spirit says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. And so we see this pivotal moment as the gospel moves from Israel out to the Gentiles. And today as we continue our journey, we're going to be looking at the fourth key pivot moment, that fourth kind of real change in the gospel as we spend time in Acts chapter 15. And, and this, just to give you a quick uh, introduction, in Acts chapter 15, we discover that as the church has been growing and as the Israelites have been proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've got this weird thing happening where, hold on, all these Gentiles are coming in. And so basically we have a bunch of circumcised believers and uncircumcised believers. And of course part of the church goes, well, if you, if you, have to, if you want to be a believer, you have to get circumcised. And there's this big debate because no grown man wants to get circumcised. And they want to try to figure out how do we respond, how do we deal with this. And that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Acts chapter 15. We won't read the whole thing. Uh, we'll go through a couple of portions as we're going as you turn to Acts 15, I don't know about you, but I love hearing good news. You know, I, I love it when somebody says, hey, guess what? I've got great news. And I think all of us, all humans love good news. You know, whether it's, a, a, you know, a friend coming in and saying, hey, I'm engaged to be married. Yay. You know, or, or perhaps your children coming to tell you we're pregnant. Uh, you know, I remember both my parents and my in-laws being just so excited at that news when we told them we're, we're having a kid. Uh, you know, people come in and they say, I got a promotion at work, or, or I went to the doctor and the test is all clear. We love great news. In fact, when we hear great news, we can't help but share great news. You know, we, we tell others, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? It was awesome. It's great news. Now, I really don't mean to be cliched. I know you're expecting me to do this, but honestly, as a preacher, as a pastor, I think there is no greater news than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There is no greater news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but will have eternal life. This is good news. And this is the news that gets shared all through the book of Acts. This is the gospel proclamation. And it's the story we're invited into as we're invited to share. Give me a moment. Maybe I shouldn't speak so passionately. Maybe I should just, you know, be calm. Be cool. Just calm it down. Acts chapter 15, of course, there is context. We've been reading through Acts, and, and it's really easy when you pick a book like Acts and you start reading it, that it kind of feels like everything's happening on the go. It's, it's this action-packed. The reality is by the time we get to Acts 15, we're about 20 years into the journey. So, so there's a lot of time that has elapsed. The gospel has now spread. You know, what started in Jerusalem with those little believers in the upper room has now spread all across. And, and as it spread across the known world, as I said, so the Gentiles are slowly coming in and they're joining in with the believers. And so in Acts 15, a group of Judaizers come into the church, and these are believers in Christ, but they're following the law. They're following the Old Testament covenant law. And they're saying that in order to believe, you also have to be circumcised. Basically, what they're saying is Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. And of course, that creates tension because the apostles are saying, no, 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 no. The only thing that counts is faith in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you add to that. In fact, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. It is simply Jesus Christ. And of course, there's this, this tension and this argument and this fighting going on. And so they do what all good Christian church groups do. They call an assembly. And off they head to Jerusalem. And they have their own mini assembly to discuss this. And so this early church leaders have come together. And part of why they've come together is because in Acts chapter 15, in, in verse 1, we read that, and this isn't on the screen, but in verse 1, certain individuals came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So that's what's at stake here, that these Judaizers have come in, and this is what they're trying to teach. And the question then is, well, do we have to keep the Old Testament law in order to be saved? Is it really just faith in Christ, or do we have to do something else on top of that? And of course, uh, disclaimer, the answer is no. I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes telling you that. The answer is no. In fact, Paul summarizes this for us in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But in Acts chapter 15, as we spend some time there, we see these four points that the apostles teach us about this, this freedom, this, this beauty that we have in the gospel the first thing we discover is the gospel is a gift of grace. The gospel is by God's grace. In fact, in Acts 15, verse 11, and this one we can have up on the screen, um, 
Acts 15, as the apostles are teaching and responding, they say, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so what the apostle is saying is that's we, the, the Israelites, we, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of grace. You know, I know sometimes that when I stand up here, I sound like a broken record. And for the youngsters, maybe like a Spotify song that's lagging and it's just repeating. And we say the same thing over and over because that's what the scriptures keep reminding us. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If we ever try to follow the law, if we think that we can be saved by following the law, it's then we discover that we're all doomed. None of us can follow the law. Yes, sure, we might be able to follow a whole bunch of the law, but as soon as we break one part of the law, we break all the law. The old preacher Henry Moorhouse had a, a lady in his church who could not co conceive this. And she came up to him one day as he was trying to teach on this, and she said, how could you say that I am as bad as somebody else who's broken seven or ten of the laws, and, and maybe I've only broken one? How can you say that I'm just as doomed or just as guilty? And so Henry Morehouse thought about it for a while, and, and he sort of he pulled out his pocket watch, and he said, imagine in my pocket watch, there's only one cog that is broken, all the others are fine. All the others are fixed and perfect. With that one broken cog, the watch doesn't tell the time. And this woman still didn't get it. She's like, no, but that, you know. So eventually he said, okay, imagine this. Imagine you're dangling over a cliff. Uh, you have a chain of 10 links. And somebody comes along and smashes all 10 links. What would happen to you? And she rightfully says, well, I'd plummet to the bottom. Yes, of course you would. Now imagine that, that chain of 10 links, somebody comes and smashes just one of the links. What happens? She goes, well, the exact same. I would fall to the bottom. Exactly. When we deal with a holy God, an eternal God, it doesn't matter whether we break one or all. This is why James writes for us in James chapter 2. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If we had to be saved by keeping the law, then indeed none of us would be saved. And this is why we need the work of Jesus Christ, because it is a gift of grace. We're saved by, by the work and the words of Christ. Read with me in Acts chapter 15 from verse 13 to 19. Acts 13 to 19. Of course, if I can find my 13. Oh, there it is. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of humanity may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. 
It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So what does James do here? James is quoting Amos chapter 9. And in quoting Amos 9, James is saying that there is hope. This is the prophesied hope that all the prophets gave. That salvation wouldn't only be for the Israelites, but that salvation would go through Israel to the very ends of the world and that the Gentiles would be saved as well. This is what we are now seeing. Not only that there is hope, but the hope is being realized. Gentiles are turning to Christ. And they're discovering salvation in the risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. It is this gift of grace. But this council in Jerusalem, this gathering, this assembly, if you will, don't only point out the gospel of grace. The second thing they point out to us is that the gospel liberates us from Old Testament law. The gospel liberates us. That is, it sets us free from the Old Testament, the law, from the burden of trying to follow that law. In fact, we start in verse 19, and if we, we pick up Acts 15, 19, hopefully we've got that up there, great. Acts 15, verse 19 to 21. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from, from, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And then if we jump ahead to verse 23, uh, we get the actual letter. And so with the apostles, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things." You know, one thing that stands out in their discussion, their conversation, and then the letter that they send to these Gentile believers is that the burden of the Old Testament law, which could never hope to be fulfilled and followed, has been lifted. We don't need to keep the law of circumcision. We don't need to keep that, all those hundreds of laws. We can eat bacon. Praise the Lord. Now, of course, God's moral law was never abolished. That's not at all what they're saying here. There is still a moral law that we're called to adhere to. 
But when it comes to following each and every letter of the law, we don't follow those. Yes, when we read the New Testament, Jesus calls us to a much higher standard than, than some laws. In fact, if we read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, there's some challenging portions in there on how to live as Christ followers. But we don't need to follow all the ritualistic laws. And so as these leaders gather and, and as they realize that, look, we've got some 400-odd laws, we don't need to send them that. We don't even need to send them 40. Let's just list four things for them to avoid. You know, later on, in, in, first, in Second Corinthians, sorry, Paul will talk about the simplicity of the gospel. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says this, uh, and this is the New King James Version. It says, but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The gospel is a simple message. It's we humans that love to fill it up with all these laws, all these rules, all these checkboxes. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And really what the apostles are saying in this early council as they write to the Gentiles is there is joy, there is freedom in the simple message. We don't have to follow all these laws. You know, we, we, we probably don't fully appreciate or understand the freedom that that meant for those early Jews. I know I've mentioned a few uh, every now and then, but I love reading through some of the, the, the Torah laws or the, the Jewish laws on how to follow up. And, and take, for instance, just one, uh, the case of carrying a burden. In Jeremiah 7 verse 21, it says, Take heed for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath, don't carry a burden. But now that obviously begs the question, well, what is a burden? So the scribes got together and they, they started to define it. And this is what they said of a burden. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Honey enough to put upon a wound. Oil enough to anoint a small member. Water enough to moisten an eye solve, and so on, and, and there's a whole bunch of them. And of course, well, then it had to go, well, if you're carrying something, that's a burden. So, so then they started to debate, well, what if a woman wanted to put on jewelry on the Sabbath? Is she carrying a burden? And what about those individuals who perhaps had had some physical calamity and maybe now they had a wooden leg or something like that? Is that carrying a burden because it's heavier than a dried fig? It got so bad they debated whether a mother could lift her own child on the Sabbath or not, because that's a burden. Of course, now I know none of you mothers would ever say your child is a burden. And that's what they did. They would debate and, and, and try and figure out all these rules. And the apostles go, we couldn't follow them. Why do we make them follow it? We cannot do that. Don't worry about those burdens. The good news of the gospel is those laws are unnecessary. We have liberty. We have freedom. We are free from the burden of the law. And this is why later on Paul is going to say in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. But of course, legalists 
like the Judaizers, love causing trouble. Because that freedom is too, it's too nebulous. I, I, I need a checklist. I need to be able to measure not only me, but you. Are you a good Christian in comparison to me? And so there have to be rules. There, there have to be these things in place. In fact, Paul, later on, when he's talking about all of this, when he writes to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And then at the end of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. The gospel of Jesus liberates us from this Old Testament law. It liberates us from trying to follow a whole bunch of laws. But the next thing that the apostles point out, because even though we're liberated from the law, it doesn't mean that we're now sort of free to do whatever we please. Paul goes on, to, uh, sorry, the apostles go on in this Jerusalem council, and the third thing they point out is the gospel calls us to live by love. So we're free from this Old Testament law. We're free from following all these ritualistic rules in place, but it calls us to live by love. Godly love is, is, the, is the purpose for the necessary things that James mentions in this letter. You know, when James says it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with all these rules, not to burden you with all these things, but instead there's just four requirements. There's just four things we're saying to you. Avoid blood, avoid food that's been strangled, avoid food sacrificed to, animal, um, to idols, and flee from sexual immorality. And of course, the, that call to sexual purity should be no surprise to us. We know that as we read through Scripture and, and certainly as we understand the times that those Scriptures were written in, each of the towns, all of the cities had temples to various idols, to various gods, and a big part of worship in a number of those were there would be uh, temple prostitutes and shrines and, and orgies, and, and so there was, you know, sexual immorality was rampant uh, just as part of the day. And so, of course, the apostles are going, well, when we read through the rest of Scripture, we know that there is a sexual standard that God calls us to. And this is why you've heard me from this stage say that we as Christians, we who, who preach the Bible, we believe that God gave marriage as that place for sexual union. And that anything outside of marriage, that's not God's plan. That's sin. That's not God's ideal. God gave us this. Yet here we are in a society where everything is about sex. Sex is rampant. I think the apostles would say to us again, believers, flee, avoid sexual immorality. Set an example to community. Set an example to the world around you. But of course, they don't only talk about that. And that one we can understand why on earth would they talk about abstaining food from food sacrificed to idols or from blood or from animals that had been strangled? Well, imagine this. Imagine that you are a devout Jewish believer. You have followed your dietary custom laws all your life. And so as a Jewish believer and you've avoided pork and you've avoided various foods, the unclean foods, 
And now you come into this body of believers where they're, they're roasting pig and they're eating foods that you've, you've avoided all your life. Of course, it's going to be difficult. Some habits die hard. Now, we see that even today when people have been perhaps saved and redeemed out of cult backgrounds or out of legalistic backgrounds, they still wrestle and struggle with this idea of freedom. And so the apostles are going, look, we know you're free to eat that. We know idols are nothing. But for the sake of love, for the sake of love, don't don't be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul's going to speak all about that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where Paul says it's not about whether you can or cannot eat that. We know that you're free to eat that, but you're going to be a stumbling block to somebody else by eating that when you're gathered. So yes, the gospel sets you free from the law, from the Old Testament laws and rules, but it doesn't set you free from love. So in love, serve your brothers and sisters. And if a brother and sister takes offense at that, then don't do it. Rather keep that for when you're at home and do that. I remember as a a kid, I grew up in a a really conservative Baptist background where, you know, Baptists just didn't drink. That that was the way it was. Baptists didn't drink, uh, certainly at least when we were out in public or with anyone else. And uh, our pastor, his daughter was our age, and so the youth ended up at the pastor's house one night, and we're playing around, we're having some fun, and uh, we all end up in the kitchen. And I imagine like 12 teenagers in this kitchen, and uh, we wanted to start making some tea and coffee, and so we're scratching through all the cupboards to try and find some tea and coffee. And I remember my good friend Mark, he just suddenly shouts out, what on earth? And he had found a stash of beer in the pastor's house house. That was, that was a big thing. And only after a while did I realize he had freedom. It was never about the booze. He just kept it quiet at home and enjoyed it on his own because he understood his freedom, but he never wanted to be a stumbling block to anybody else. That's what Paul's saying. Yes, you're free from the law. Yes, you're free from all these restrictions and rules, but you're not free from love. The gospel calls us to live in love. And then the fourth and final thing that the apostles teach us in Acts chapter 15 is the gospel leads us to serve our Savior. The gospel leads us to serve our Savior. I want to read again Acts 15, verse 22 to 27. And then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, who were leaders among the believers, with them, and they sent them with the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing." What do these Christians do to serve the Lord? 
they took the word of the Lord out. They went on the road. As these apostles come back to Jerusalem and as they debate, so the apostles don't just send the same group back, they send a whole bunch of others. And they say to them, go, go and proclaim the truth, go and proclaim the gospel, go and teach, go and equip. And I I love the fact that as they introduce them, it's not just men who are coming to share with you, these are men who have risked their lives for the gospel. In fact, by the time we get to Acts 15, there has been tremendous persecution in the early church. We've covered that on some of the previous weeks. That as people have stood for the gospel, as people have stood to proclaim Christ, so they have been persecuted for their faith. And the apostles say these are men, and indeed there would be women with those crowds who have gone out, who have risked their lives. They're willing to go. My brothers and sisters, as we receive this gospel of grace, as we receive this salvation, we're never, it's never intended that we receive it and just sit on it. We're supposed to go out. This is why we do things like Summer Kids Club. This is why we do things like the meet and greet in the middle of a Halloween night. You know, as we go out into the community, as we shine the light of Christ. You know, I, I, I was supposed to be at one of those tables, but I was as sick as a dog, and I realized I can't hand out coffee while coughing and splattering on people. And so like a Grinch, I stayed at home. But later in that evening, I got a phone call from someone I know because they had happened to be walking with their kids, trick-or-treating, and, and some friendly person offered them some coffee and gave their kids a sack of candies. And he was like, what, what's this all about? And somebody said, no, we're just from the church over here. Just want to make sure you have a great night. And, you know, we're just sharing. And so he said, well, which church? The Baptist church. And, and when he realized, White Rock Baptist church, is that Brian's church? And I had to correct him, it's not my church. It's, it, it's our church. But yes. And he was touched by the fact that we would go out and just hand out coffee and candies. That simple act of taking the gospel and living the light of Christ in our communities. That's what we do as a church because we've received the grace of God. We've discovered the freedom we have in Christ and we want others to discover freedom as well. My friends, there are people living in bondage around us. There are people living in darkness. They're in desperate need of the life and the light that you and I have. Let us therefore go and serve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. All said and done, Acts chapter 15 is relatively simple. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no work that will save us. There is nothing we add to that. But as we receive that salvation... So we go and we share and we spread. May God help us do just that. Let's pray before we gather at the table. Heavenly Father, as we contemplate your word, Jesus, I stand amazed. I know that my human nature, indeed all of our human nature, is we want to try and do something to earn favor. 
We, we think we have to add to it. We think that we have to follow some rules and some laws. Because if we do that, then we will be pleasing to you. But then, Jesus, we read your word. And we discover we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're declared forgiven and righteous when we receive and accept Christ as Savior and Lord. God, thank you for this incredible gift. Help us to go out and to share that gift of grace, that gospel with the world in desperate need. For we ask this in your name. Amen.